Hi, I'm Joseph Feraldi. I want to thank you for joining us here at Bayside Chapel Online. Our prayer is that today's service will be a blessing to you, that it will encourage you in your journey with Jesus Christ, and it will help you to see all that God has in store for you. We would love to hear from you on how God is using this ministry to bless you, and we'd love the opportunity to pray for you. Just send us an email at amen at baysidechapel.org. Remember that you can stay in touch with us at any time. Just visit the App Store and search for our app at Bayside Chapel of NJ. Also, if God is using this ministry to bless you, we'd like to give you the opportunity to partner with us financially. Simply go online to BaysideChapel.org or use the Bayside Chapel app and choose whatever option works best for you. Enjoy today's message. So this morning, we're going to start things off a little, little light, a little easy, a little bit of interaction. Be real easy. There's going to be a picture on the screen behind me, and I want you to just shout out whatever the, the movie or show is that's represented by the picture. Okay, this is really, really easy, I promise. All right, let's throw the first one up there. See, it was easy, right? New girl, very good. Minions, yep. My favorite, Lord of the Rings. That's right. Sandlot. All right, and here's our final. Cheers. Cheers. All right, good. Let me ask you, what do these images have in common? What do they all represent? Teamwork, c- community, friendship, right? For, for Lord of the Rings, they actually call that a fellowship, right? Each group of people are well-known friends who, for the most part, work together to accomplish some pretty amazing things. Now, the reason I think these kinds of movies and shows are so successful is because we want that, right? We feel like we were wired for something like that. We look at that and we're like, oh man, I want that. I could see myself being part of that crew. Oh, that looks like so much fun. I wish I could have that. And then we look at our own lives and realize something's missing. These kinds of relationships are non-existence. So if your life was a TV show or movie, you probably couldn't call it friends. You'd have to call it friend or ghostbuster or minion. Doesn't work with cheer. But why is this? Why do you think we settle for a life of isolation? Or why do we settle for even lukewarm friendships? Well, I think one of the reasons is that we've bought into the lie that says the Christian life is a solo act. That Christianity is a one-person show where you have to walk the tightrope of faith all by yourself. See, but the simple truth is that following Jesus is not a solo act. It never was. It never was intended to be. See, following Jesus is a team sport. It's a family. It's a full-blown fellowship of believers. Again, I'm not talking about lukewarm friendships here, lukewarm friendships with people who just share your space. I'm talking about life-giving fellowship with people who shape your soul. Besides, when it comes to shaping your soul, wouldn't you rather have Gandalf whispering wisdom into your ear than Joey Tribbiani saying, how you doing? 
So this morning, we close our New Year's series that we're calling Renewed. And we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. That's toward the end of your Bibles. We're going to be reading those 10 verses in, in John. Now, here's what this passage is going to teach us. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, that entire first chapter is going to teach us this morning that Jesus rewrites the script of community. He exchanges our lukewarm friendships for lifelong fellowship, for lifelong life-giving fellowship. See, understand that when you said yes to Jesus, a lot of things became true of you. He gave you a new life when you said yes to Jesus. He gave you a new eternal purpose when you said yes to him. He gave you a new passion, and he gave you a new eternal fellowship, a new family. So we're going to be looking at this idea of fellowship today. Now, in the New Testament, the word uh, for fellowship, anytime we see that word, that's usually a translation of a word that might sound familiar to some of us, a word called koinonia. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard that term before, koinonia. Now, koinonia is a, is a word that paints a far richer picture than our understanding or our idea of uh, casual friendship. See, koinonia comes from a word that means common um, or, or shared um, or in partnership with, right? So it speaks of a deep spiritual fellowship where followers of Jesus share the life of Jesus. Now, there's two dimensions to this fellowship. First, there's the vertical dimension of this fellowship, right? Which is the, that vertical dimension is where we share the nature and life of Christ because of our union with him. So there's that vertical dimension of fellowship, but then there's the horizontal dimension of fellowship where we share that intimate union with other believers. See, it's both ways. It's not just vertical. It's not just horizontal. It's both. So our passage this morning is going to reveal to us three facts of fellowship, we'll, we'll call them. Three facts of fellowship. The first four verses then of 1 John chapter 1 declare this fact. The ground of fellowship is the gospel. The ground of fellowship is a gospel. What makes a fellowship a fellowship is the foundation of the gospel. Now, when I say gospel, I'm referring to the good news of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. Because without the gospel, it's not a fellowship. Understand that. Without the gospel, it's not a fellowship. It's a friendship. So 1 John chapter 1, let's look at the first four verses. John says, that which was from the beginning. Now he's talking about Jesus here. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Again, there's that term word. Remember John and John's gospel when we looked at that at the end of uh, around Christmas time, he calls Jesus the word. So now in his epistle, he's using that same that same term, concerning the word of life, this life, verse 2, was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So four verses right there. 
that tell us four different things about this gospel that binds us together as believers. Four different things. Here's the first one that John wants us to know. John wants us to know that the gospel is fact, not fiction. The gospel is fact, not fiction. Look again at verse 1. He says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard with our own ears, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. See, John's telling us that this gospel is not a campfire story. The gospel is not hearsay. The message of Jesus is not a secondhand retelling that just like a game of telephone that just went on and on and on. The gospel is history. It's actual eyewitness testimony. The apostles didn't hear rumors about Jesus. They attentively listened personally to Jesus speak. It didn't just catch a glimpse of him. They intently observed him and they walked side by side with him for three years. So our fellowship then is built on this concrete reality of Jesus. Jesus actually walked and talked and healed and died and rose again. That's the script of our salvation. The gospel is fact, not fiction. And here's another thing that John says about the gospel. He says the gospel is proclaimed, not private. Look again at verse 2. He says, the life, Jesus' life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it, witnessed to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, he's talking about Jesus here. The eternal life made manifest, meaning the eternal life revealed to us in human form. And what he's saying here is that the gospel isn't this well-guarded secret just for the elite few. It's not a, a VIP club with velvet ropes and bouncers. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is the grand narrative of the entire universe. It's the greatest message for all people of all time. The story of Jesus is way too magnificent to be muzzled. Imagine if scientists discovered a cure for a really deadly disease, but they decided to keep that discovery private. Right? That would be unthinkable. Well, in the same way, the gospel is the cure for our deepest ailment, for sin, for death. So why would we live our lives hoarding this truth instead of sharing it, instead of preaching it, instead of proclaiming it, instead of living it? Don't keep the truth of the gospel to yourself. Share it boldly. Share it lovingly. In your workplace, in your family, in your school, in your community, let the truth of Jesus be on display. Right? Not just as a, as a pushy sales pitch, but as an irresistible force of life because you've been so changed by Jesus. So I think sometimes what we need to do is we need to stop scrolling through the highlight reels of other people's lives. We need to put down our phones and we need to look around us and see who needs our story, who needs our laughter, who needs our love, who needs our Jesus. The gospel is to be proclaimed it's not to be kept private. Then John tells us a third thing about the gospel. He says the gospel is shared, not selfish. The gospel is meant to be shared. It's not a selfish thing. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. 
And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So there is our word fellowship. There's our word koinonia, right? That deep shared partnership that we have in Christ. See here, John is saying that the reason we're proclaiming the gospel to you is because we want you to enter into fellowship with God. And we want you to enter into fellowship with us. We want to share this eternal life with everyone and anyone who's going to listen. Church, the gospel is a shared experience. It's not a solo experience. It's a collective journey of faith. It's not an isolated journey of faith. I've said this before, and I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again. If you profess to be a Christian, understand that your relationship with Jesus, though it's deeply personal, was never intended to be private. You get that. Your relationship with Jesus is personal, but it is not supposed to be private, ever. It's supposed to be shared. See, Scripture knows nothing of Christians who live as lone rangers. So please, I'm going to step on some toes here, but please don't mistake online church then for the real thing. It's not the real thing. It was never intended to be the real thing. It's not supposed to be the real thing. It never will be the real thing. Right? Think of a campfire. What happens when you're at a campfire and you take a, a piece of wood that's burning in the campfire, you take it out and you throw it off to the side? What would happen? It flames out. It dies. Right? But God didn't save us to become fading embers. Right? He saved us to become part of the blazing glory of fellowship. The more logs that you throw on the fire, the brighter and warmer the fire becomes, just like it's supposed to be in a fellowship. The more we worship together, the more we share our burdens, share our joys, share our struggles, share our lives, the greater the fire of our fellowship is going to crackle and warm everybody around us. And make no mistake, the brighter we shine. Here in Southern Ocean County, the harder it's going to be for our neighbors to resist the draw and to ignore the light. The gospel is shared, not selfish. And then a fourth thing we see about the gospel is the gospel is rejoicing, not repressive. It brings joy. Look at verse 4. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. See, John here is saying that one of the reasons he's writing about fellowship with Christ and fellowship with one another is because God desires that everybody would experience the deep and abiding joy that comes from being secure in Christ, that comes as a result of the gospel. In other words, the result of fellowship Fellowship with God and fellowship with one another, the result of that fellowship is fullness of joy. The joy that John talks about here is that deep sense of contentment that's grounded and rooted in God and the gospel. It's not that sense of cheerfulness that um, is, it has to do with our external circumstances. We call that happiness. That's different than the joy that's talked about here, as opposed to happiness. That, again, it's that ever changing cheerfulness that goes up and down. But God doesn't change, so our joy doesn't need to change. Listen, if you're not a joy-filled Christian, joy is really important. Don't be passive in just letting your joy fade away and diminish. I love what Charles Spurgeon said about joy. 
I'm going to read a, a bit of an extended quote from him. So just listen to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about joy, particularly on this verse. He says this. He says, your joy needs looking after. You cannot always rejoice because although your treasure is not in this world, your affliction is. Poverty will sometimes be too heavy a cross for you to sing under. Sickness sometimes casts you upon a bed on which you have not as yet learned to rejoice. Losses befall you in business, failures of hope, forsaking of friends, and cruelty of foes. Your joy will need to be looked after then, lest floods should come in and quench it. You will need to cry out to him who alone can keep its flame burning. I suppose, too, that you have moods and susceptibilities which make it no easy matter to maintain perpetual joy. Sometimes there will be deep depression of spirit. You can scarcely tell why. Besides, sin will stop the beginning of your holy joy, and when you would dance for joy, some internal corruption will come to hamper your delight. Ah, beloved, it is not easy to sing while you fight, but Christian soldiers ought to do it. They should march to battle with songs of triumph. Your joy to keep it full and flowing at high tide should be guarded and supplied by an influence above your own. If any of you have, has lost the joy of the Lord, I pray you do not think it a small loss. Let us walk carefully. Let us walk prayerfully so that we may realize perpetual joy and peace even to the fullest. Let none of us be content to sit down in misery. Come, let us praise him. If we've looked dark in the face for a while, let us brighten up with the thoughts of Christ. Church, understand the gospel ignites joy. That's what the gospel does. Our fellowship isn't about beating ourselves up and living in defeat over our past rejections and past hurts and past failures. Our fellowship is about celebrating the freedom that we have in Jesus, the liberation that he gave us from sin and shame and walking in that freedom. We rejoice because that's what happens when the darkness gets blown away by the light of Christ. We rejoice because that's what happens when we've encountered the overflowing love and grace of Jesus. So sing your praises in the shower, blast your worship music in the car, dance to your favorite Christian song in the kitchen, and share the joy of the gospel with the gloomy world around you. So in this first part of 1 John, we've seen that the ground, the basis, the foundation of our fellowship is the gospel. That is a common denominator that binds people together in fellowship. And we've called this our first fact of fellowship. Then the next three verses, five through seven, reveal to us a second fact of fellowship, and it's that the gauge of genuine fellowship is godliness. The gauge of genuine fellowship is godliness. Godliness is that gauge that measures whether or not our fellowship is actually genuine, because true Christian fellowship will always be marked by a shared commitment to live in alignment with God's truth and a shared commitment to be dependent on Jesus for all of life. So this is what John writes in 5 through 7. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
So at least two things here that John says in these few verses about godliness. And first is this. Godliness simply means to walk in the light of Christ. That's what godliness means, to walk in the light of Christ. Look at verse 5 again. He says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So what he's saying here is the character of God defines the path of godliness. God's character defines that path. He is light. The path is light. His very nature is that of beauty and holiness and, and truth and justice and perfection. He's entirely good and pure. So he goes on in verse 6. He says, if we have fellowship with him, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Now, this is a really good place to pause and ask that very important question that we ask, um, supposed to ask before we start reading or studying any scripture. We have to ask that, that why question of historical context. Why did John write what he wrote? What was going on in, in the context of the first century that, uh, that prompted John to write this, obviously other than the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Well, understand that in the first century, the early church, they were fighting against a lot of false teachings that were, that were starting to become popular, um, and all these false teachings were threatening the integrity of the gospel. So the early apostles, they, they had to be very diligent in, in combating these false teachings, and one of these false teachings was known as Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism taught was that everything physically, everything in the material world is inherently evil. Right, so in the New Testament, when God says to enjoy everything that he gives us, like all the food to eat and all that good stuff that he gives us, well, they would think that was bad because it's, it's material, it's physical. So everything physical or material is inherently evil. Then they also thought that everything spiritual is inherently good. So that means if we're inherently good, we don't have sin. So you see why John is writing this. See, they thought, these Gnostics believed and taught that it doesn't matter what you do in the body, you can sin all you want. Your spirit is good. There was this separation, this dualism between um, what you do and, and who God says you are. So here, understand, John is directly countering this false teaching, this false idea. He's saying here, if you say you have fellowship with God, who is light, but yet you're walking in darkness, you're lying. Now understand the word for walk here, it doesn't mean like to just take a step. What walk means here is it implies an ongoing, continuous journey. It's the, the habitual and ongoing way you walk, talk, think, act, speak. That's what it means by walk here. So understand that the walk here, this is not about moral perfection. This is about directional progression. Okay, it's not about moral perfection. It's about directional progression. I think it was... Eugene Peterson, who said sanctification is walking um, the same path over the long course of time. And that's what this walk is here that, that John's talking about. He's, understand, he, he's reinforcing that, that true fellowship with God, true Christian spirituality, true Christian fellowship is, in fact, going to impact the way we live our lives. It's going to impact the direction we walk in our lives, our thoughts, our lifestyles, our choices are all going to be a gauge of the authenticity of our fellowship with God. In other words, the gauge of genuine fellowship with God is godliness. 
walking in the light of Christ. Then John tells us a second thing about godliness. He says, godliness means to walk with others who walk in the light. So it's not just you walking in the light, it's you walking with others who are already walking in the light of Jesus. Verse 7, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. Our Christian walk is not solitary. John says we have fellowship, we have koinonia with one another, right? Meaning our lives, they're not even just parallel to each other where you're walking here, I'm walking here, and we're headed the same path. This is so much deeper than that. The word koinonia, it kind of gets into the idea of not only are our lives parallel, but they're actually intricately woven. We're not just sharing the same path, we're sharing each other's journeys along that same path. This is the idea here behind koinonia. Genuine fellowship is about giving, and receiving. It's about teaching and learning. It's about encouraging and being encouraged. It's about serving and being served. And church, I gotta say, this is one of the reasons I love calling Bayside Chapel home because you guys do such a great job of this. It brings me so much joy knowing that this is a place made up of brothers and sisters who spur each other on toward love and good works in Christ. That Bayside Chapel is a place where you encourage one another with the gospel, that it's a place where you hold one another accountable to the ways of Christ, that it's a place where you deeply support one another as you journey through trials and tribulations, and that it's a place where you forgive and restore one another when there has been hurt or insult or injury. I pray that God will continue to keep us dependent on him to be a community that walks as one in the light of Christ. Now, there's an implied caution here in this, in this passage. The implied caution is it should really raise a red flag if your closest friends, your closest companions are those who don't walk in the light or those who aren't believers. Now, he's not saying to live a life of isolation, right? That, that's not what he's saying. In fact, the idea is... It, you continue those relationships, but you're to influence them with the light. You're not to be influenced by them with the darkness. But that's why there are so many Proverbs that talk about our relationships being so important. Proverbs 13.20 encourages us. It says, walk with the wise and become wise. It just happens naturally. We become like those that we share life with, right? So if we're walking very intently with brothers and sisters in Christ, we're going to look like brothers and sisters in Christ, Right? The friends we walk with determine the direction we walk in. The friends that you walk with determine the direction that you're walking in. So we can't just let friendships happen by chance or by circumstance. We have to be intentional with choosing our friendships. We have to choose them carefully, not casually, not conveniently. And listen, in an age of virtual connection, this is like really, really easy to forget. Because it's easier than ever to slide into those online spaces where all it does is spread spiritual sickness. 
You consume viral videos and, and, and all these trending hashtags without thinking of the effects that it has on your values. Or you get so uh, numb uh, to, to the amusement that you feed yourself without considering how it shapes and molds your worldview gradually, step by step over time. And before you know it, what happens is you're being influenced by strangers who walk in the dark than you are by fellow believers who live in the light. And over time, your online tribe overtakes your local church. So yeah, you may gain a couple hundred Facebook followers, Instagram followers, or a couple thousand TikTok views, but you lost your spiritual compass. See, it's not just in person where we can lose our fellowship. It's online too. So think about this. How would you rate yourself on the scale of fellowship, on this fellowship scale? How do you grade yourself? Is God asking you to take a step away from some of those lukewarm friendships and to take a step toward lifelong, life-giving fellowship? What's the next step that you might be able to take? Maybe the next step is something as simple as staying after the first service or coming before the second service to enjoy bagels and coffee. Right? We, we love food here, but that's actually not the only reason we do it. We have that as a time. We call that fellowship time. Not that that in and of itself counts as fellowship, but that leads to fellowship. That leads to those connections. So that's a small step that you can take next week. Maybe it looks like serving in a ministry of the church alongside other believers, other brothers and sisters who share the same spiritual gifts that you do. Or maybe it's joining a group or a class. Because when you're part of a small group, that, that, that small group fosters that intimate sense of community where you can share and grow in your faith while you build those meaningful and lifelong relationships. And just so you know, this is the perfect time to get plugged into a group or a class as a lot of them are just getting kicked off uh, for the new year. Um, so if that's something the Lord's leading you to do, just go, go on the app and click the groups tab or find somebody in the welcome team. Get plugged in that way. Listen, sometimes all it takes is just openness, right? Simply being open to conversation, to, to new relationships can lead to meaningful connections. So don't, don't hesitate to, on a Sunday morning to initiate conversations. Don't hesitate to invite someone out for lunch or, or to, to invite someone out over coffee because more often than not, the people that you're talking to are also craving fellowship. Remember, fellowship is about sharing each other's lives, and shaping each other's souls in Christ. So every step that you take, however small it is, every step that you take toward engaging with others who are in union with Christ is a step toward deeper, more meaningful fellowship. Jesus rewrites the script on community. He exchanges our lukewarm friendships for lifelong, life-giving fellowship. So we learn that the ground of fellowship is the gospel. We learn that the gauge of genuine fellowship is godliness. And then the third fact of fellowship that we learned from 1 John chapter 1 is that the gate into fellowship is genuine confession. The gate into fellowship is genuine confession. Now, genuine confession isn't just to acknowledge sins or admit faults. Genuine confession, true biblical confession, is first to recognize your need for Jesus and then to rely on his grace to save you and keep you. That's what genuine confession looks like. Look at verses 8 through 10. And remember, keep in mind the false teaching that John's writing to counter against. 
It says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John essentially says two things about uh, confession in these final verses of 1 John chapter 1. First thing he says is uh, confession simply means to embrace the reality of sin. That's what confession means. First of all, it means to embrace the reality of sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So before we can confess our sins or admit to uh, wrongdoing and shortcomings, we first have to believe that we have sins and shortcomings and failures that actually need to be confessed and need forgiveness. If you deny the existence of weeds in the garden, does it make the weeds go away? No. In fact, denying the existence of weeds causes them to take over. Right? If you have a gaping wound in your body but ignore it, does that mean it's not there? No, it's going to infect and fester and spread and grow. Denying our sin doesn't just diminish it. It strengthens it. So confession starts first by embracing the reality of sin and our need for a Savior. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's exactly where confession starts. And then the second thing John tells us about genuine confession is confession means to embrace Christ's redemption from sin. Confession means to embrace Christ's redemption from sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, there's an important question we have to ask here. What does it actually mean to confess our sins when it says, uh, if we confess our sins? See, understand that the word um, here for confess, it, it literally means uh, to agree with um, or to say the same thing as. That's what the word means. So to confess our sins then means to agree with God and to say the same thing that God says about our sin. So you have to look, what does God say about our sin? Well, if you're outside of the fellowship of God, if you're not a follower of Christ, confession looks like admitting your guilt. It looks like acknowledging your need for a savior. It looks like embracing God's forgiveness made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what confession looks like if you're outside of the fellowship. But what about for believers? What does confession look like for those inside the fellowship? Because there's a lot of debate over this particular verse, 1 John 1, 9. Scholars are all over the place. Commentators, some say it's only, this verse is meant for non-Christians. Others say, no, this verse is for Christians. I say, I think both. Um, I don't think God limits it. And I think you just have to understand the context here. So for the believer, what does it mean to confess sins? This is one of those early Bible verses I, I memorized uh, as a teenager. And and I did not have a proper understanding of it. Because every time I'd mess up, I would think I was back in a place of unforgiveness. I would think I was back in a place of being dirty and needing, God, needing the sacrifice of Christ all over again. So, so I, I wasn't really understanding what true confession meant for the believer. See, so for the believer, confession means to agree with God. When we confess our sins, we agree with God that yes, whatever it is that we're confessing is sin, but we acknowledge 
and say thank you that our sins have already been forgiven at the cross of Christ. They've already been completely washed away by the blood of Jesus. So it's important to understand what this passage doesn't mean. This passage doesn't mean forgiveness from God is given out in in daily increments, in daily doses, or daily installments, little by little, day by day, and then finally you've made it. It doesn't mean that God progressively forgives us as we struggle to remember and confess every single little sinful thought, word, deed, or action. No, the moment the Spirit regenerated us and gave us new life, God forgave us once and for all, and he cleansed us from all unrighteousness. That's what his word says. So understand the intent of these verses is not to trap you in that cycle of of guilt and shame and guilt and shame. It's not so you keep this meticulous list of sins that you have to go and confess. Or if you miss one, you're, you're not good. I love the way John Piper explained it. He said, we grow in holiness and obedience. We increasingly identify sin and repent. But to say that we must confess every sin the moment we commit it or else we're not forgiven is to misunderstand the nature of ongoing sanctification. So for the believer, genuine confession is a response to the already accomplished work of Christ on the cross. We're not earning new forgiveness. We're simply acknowledging that we stand in the realm of forgiveness because of the finished work of Christ. Now, don't let that lead you to licentiousness, though. Because if you truly have a growing, dynamic relationship with Jesus, you're not going to abuse his grace. So how do we practically live out this understanding of confession? What does this look like? What are some things we can do? Well, one is you can simply develop a a regular rhythm, a regular pattern of of, of prayer and and reflection, kind of creating a little bit of quiet, a little bit of space to not just do the talking, but to listen to hear from the Holy Spirit, hear how the Holy Spirit might be illuminating some of those dark corners um, of of your soul that he has yet to illuminate. Because remember, sanctification is a process. Maybe it looks like simply confessing sin to God with sincerity and humility, expressing gratitude that you're already forgiven. Maybe it looks like seeking out a trusted friend or a Christian mentor or, or an elder or a church leader. Or maybe it looks like just living in that spirit of transparency and accountability with your inner circle of fellowship. Again, because this, even our confession doesn't happen in isolation. It happens in the context of community. So get real with God about fellowship. Get real with other people about where you're at. There's no reason to, to keep masks up. There's no reason to have these facades. To, you, you can get rid of all those pretenses. Get honest about your struggles. Embrace the, the power of confession and watch as the grace of Jesus floods the darkest corners of your heart, bringing healing and, and restoration and freedom. Church, Jesus rewrites the script on community exchanging lukewarm friendships for lifelong, life-giving fellowship. So don't go another day without experiencing this life-giving fellowship that Jesus purchased for you. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise of your word. The promise of, of your word that says, if we confess our sins, 
that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, for anybody who's outside the circle of fellowship, who stands right now outside of a relationship with you, Lord, I pray that even in the quiet and stillness of these moments, that that would be the prayer of their heart. Lord, that they would confess. Lord, that they would say, have mercy on me, O God, for I am a sinner. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me, live your life through me. Thank you. And Lord, for your children in this room, God, I pray that you would instill within us a deeper um, sense of priority um, for fellowship. God, that it would become something we prioritize in life. Lord, that you would reveal the things to us that we can turn away from, that we can stop doing, that we can let go of to create space for this lifelong, life-giving fellowship. God, I, I pray, Lord, that we would be a church who journeys through this life hand in hand, side by side with one another, encouraging one another, sharing each other's struggles and joys and burdens. Lord, all the way until the day we make it home. God, I pray that every single one of us would walk this path of repentance in the strength of Jesus. God, thank you for calling us into fellowship with yourself and thank you for giving us such incredible fellowship with other believers. We love you, Jesus. God, and we continue to worship you now as we lift up our voices and sing the majesty of our King. All God's children said, Amen.